Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear a conversation between Chilean poet Raúl Zurita and American poet Forrest Gander. Raúl Zurita was born in Santiago in 1950 and is considered one of the most powerful poetic voices in Latin America today. While still in college, he was one of the many thousands of Chileans arrested following the military coup in 1973. Much of his work over the next two decades was in response to the brutality of the Pinochet dictatorship. Along with other activist artists, he staged public events to promote resistance. Despite censorship, he managed to publish works critical of the government. And in a brazen act of defiance, he used bulldozers to write the words Ni pena ni miedo, neither shame nor fear, in the desert, in a scale so large it can only be read from the sky. Forrest Gander was born in Barstow, California, and holds degrees in both English literature and geology. Though primarily a poet, he is also a novelist, essayist, and has translated numerous volumes of Latin American poetry. We also hear Anna Dini, who provides an English translation for Raúl Zurita. Dini translated Zurita's book Purgatory and the cycle of poems Dreams for Kurosawa. Ilya Kaminsky, the director of the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, hosted the conversation, which took place in September 2011. Here is Forrest Gander and Raúl Zurita. In the introduction I'm going to give tonight, I'm going to mention that you're a Chilean and a Latin American poet. But I wonder if you think of the contemporary poets you most admire in Latin America in terms of their countries of origin. Yo lo que, mi, mi admiración son César Vallejo, Pablo Neruda, Nicanor Parra, Pablo de Roca. Los cuatro hombres... My four... Most preferred poets are Vallejo, Neruda, Parra, De Roca. Those four are Chilean. Um, however, from the particularities of each place emerge particular voices. Una forma particular de decir, que creo que es muy importante en la poesía. Son, son, son poetas. Because they are poets of of their certain languages. But they are also poets of their place. Vallejo is Peruvian. Eh, 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 and he is distinct from Neruda. Each poet collects his place and his surroundings. I'm thinking about the mobility of Latin American poets and Oquendo de Amat and Vallejo who die in Spain Aimé César and Lautremont, who, um, who go to France. And now, just among some recent poets I've been reading, to think of Gerardo Denis, who's born in Spain, but is considered a Mexican writer. Juan Soros is born in Chile, but he lives and edits a publishing house in Spain. Marcia Mogro, a poet I really love, is Bolivian, but she lives, I think, most of her adult life in Santiago, Chile. Jorge Ilsen's from Lima, but he lives in Milan. Andre Fischer from Chile, but most of his poetic life has taken place in Spain and the United States. Has mobility changed Latin American writing in the last generation? Pienso que sí. Pero el exilio de una lengua... I think so. But the exile of a language 
to live in the U.S. or France. And for example, at a certain point, Paris was the literary capital of Latin America. The, the ideal, the ideal capital of Latin America. But when someone leaves one's place, there's a great nostalgia of the sound of one's language. So even if you speak that language in that new place, there is a nostalgia for the way one speaks in one's town, in one's particular place. I need the Spanish of my home. And for the Latin American poets, these immigrations have been very difficult. But nonetheless, their art has touched the circumstances of those immigrations. Vallejo, for example, Vallejo never went back to Peru. Neruda always returned. Now, internet has changed all of this experience. And he says that we don't yet know exactly how to evaluate the depth of that change. But poetry exists before writing, before printing. And it will continue in, in other ways, but it is the process of collecting the traditions and cultures and rejuvenating them. Just to give another type of example, Les Amalima never left Cuba, but he is an extremely cosmopolitan poet. And what they all have in common is that they have made a radical change. I want to just to follow up on that beautiful sentence that you say that poetry exists before writing. Would you elaborate a little bit on that? That poetry is birthed with the birth of the human. Surely at the moment when someone realized that the person who was next to him was going to die, and that that would happen to him as well. At that moment, that person understands death. And then they must immediately develop an answer. That is the first poem. And since we are made of the same elements that stars are made of, the human death poetry, that is what we are made of. That sense of the human being connected to the star and the particularity of your sense of poetry, both that it's particular to a place and that its source is in the particularity of the recognition of the person next to you who dies, makes me think of the way that your work is connected to landscape. There's a poem of Thomas Hardy's called Castle Boterell, where he says, primeval rocks form the road's steep border, and much they have seen there, first and last, of the transitory in Earth's long order. But what they record in color and cast is that we too passed, which in a quick Spanish version might be Rocas primitivas constituyen el borde de la carretera 
y mucho han visto desde el principio al fin, de lo transitorio en orden largo de la tierra, pero lo que mantienen de color y matiz es que nosotros dos hemos pasado. In La Vida Nueva, in The New Life, you write in a poem called Los Desaparecidos Levantan Su Cara Desde Los Desiertos, The Disappeared Raise Their Face, Faces from the Deserts. Desde las conmovidas piedras, desde la tierra que los miraba. From the earth that watches them. Giving here, as in many places through your work, agency to the landscape, to the earth. It's the earth that watches us as much as we watch it. And in your work, it seems that ethics seems to be the sphere of relations, not just between the self and others, but between the self and the otherness of the landscape, the non-human. Since you were trained as an engineer, I wonder in what way you believe, like Hardy, that the earth does collaborate in what we call our experience. Yo vengo de un país y de un continente donde cientos y miles de personas... I come from a country and a continent in which there are thousands of people that did not feel any compassion if not from the landscape. Those rivers, those mountains, those seas that received them, that is because they were thrown out of airplanes by the dictatorship. And so the human dialogue is only one part of this. And so many times I have felt that poetry is like the dreams of the landscape. So when we speak of an ethical pact, I don't feel like I have an ethical duty. I think that if you have a poem or a work of art, if you give it a duty to be something, you impose something upon it. And I think that is the beginning of all fascisms that poetry should be this or that poetry should be that. That the poem itself grounds its own ethical commitment, not the person who writes that poem. So I'd like to follow up on, on the question of ethics and poetry, which you bring up in your definition of poetry, because it, poetry begins in your vision with the witnessing of someone else's death. There's a literary critic at Harvard University, Philip Fisher, who asserts that Walt Whitman's identification with the suffering of others, his claim that I am the man, I suffered, I was there, is, Philip Fisher says, quote, one of the most morally dubious acts of appropriation ever described. And Fisher goes on to say that the heart of his representation is the strong, violent act of interposition and replacement. I'd like to ask you what you think is at risk in the imagination of the suffering of others, and what is at risk in not being able to imagine that suffering. Can he say a strong word? Yes. See. Sí. 
una, una, una estupidez. That that criticism is stupid. Desde Homero. Since the time of Homer. Poesía precisamente consiste en ponerse en el lugar del otro. So poetry has consisted in placing oneself in the place of someone else, of the other. Since Homer, this is the case. When he speaks of Andromeda, that happened 400 years before. But if that um, supplanting does not exist, in other words, to say, I was there, There's no language. No hay poesía, no hay literatura, no hay there's not poetry, there's not civilization, there is nothing. To use language is to put oneself in the place of the other. Of course, in your books, from purgatory on, your identity fuses with the identities of others, including torturers and child abusers, as well as the tortured and ordinary typewriter salesmen and women and children and men. Do you think that, do you think that constructional artistic decisions provide, in, in a poem, provide a model for ethical relations? And do you think the model might be different in Latin American poetry than it is in, for instance, North American poetry? Um, so, do you mean that, are you talking about um, characters in a poem, that there's another... Well, I was thinking that Rosarita made a distinction between the poet and the poem. Hiciste una distinción entre el poeta y el poema. In terms of ethics, and whether the decisions that are evident in artistic design, for instance, his decision to fuse identity with so many others, including the evil of others, um, do those decisions provide a model of ethical relations, or is that another deber? He tries to make the distinction between the one who writes and the poem itself for one reason. Because I am not man or woman. I am that which my writing dictates I am. Personalmente, me siento profundamente... So, personally, I feel very... I feel a great sense of solidarity and commitment to my country, with Latin America, with South America, with all that suffers there. But I would be terrified to tell others that they also have to have that concern, that ethical concern, because that coincides with the moment in which you say, this should be this way. Right. And so that is the commencement of fascism. And that might connect to my next question, which is about how in the 30s, even through maybe the, the 80s, in both Latin America and the United States, particularly in the 30s through the 50s, there were many writers who stopped writing, some permanently and some for a short while, because they felt that literature was a detraction from the more important deber of political work, 
and that literature took place as part of a capitalist social production. In the United States, uh, George Oppen stopped writing for 20 years. In Latin America, many poets, including Okendo de Amat. For you, was there ever a time when those realms weren't merged? El problema no está en decir o no decir que the problem isn't to say that literature is a product of capitalism. And of course, a, a book doesn't change history, at least not in that immediate moment. There are children who are dying from hunger in Africa. Poetry doesn't have any power. We can say that people are dying in Mexico, but, but I don't have any power. And however, if all those who do write poetry were to stop writing poetry, from a 15-year-old kid to someone, a Nobel Prize like Derek Walcott, humanity would disappear in the following five seconds. Because that would mean that all of the possibility, all of the dream of the possibility of change were over. And no one survives five minutes, five minutes without that. Has that, um, that sense of the poet being powerless and yet still being involved in what is essential, has that changed from the time when an Aymara poet tells Huidobro, poet, don't write about rain, make it rain. It does change. Poets found history, Homer, the Hebrew prophets. But I think that the role, el papel del poeta, I think that the role of the poet is another role. It is to carry his dead poems and cross them and take them to a beach. And then that's where everything begins to intersect. A poet that comes from Russia, the Ukraine, all of it, without knowing if someone else will pick it up or not pick it up, only to see if the tide rises to take that work away. The poet goes with his dead poems, carrying them to the sea, and waits to see if the tide rises to take those works to another shore, in the hopes that another poet will take those works and for that poetry to be reborn. And is that a metaphor for translation? It is also the commencement of the Purgatory by Dante. That dead poetry is reborn. I think that the most concrete work of writing is one's decisions with design. You must make the utmost effort of control. Because in any case, the unconscious of the poet exists, and so one must consciously try to control the poem. Because what you don't know will ultimately do what it wishes. Hmm. 
¿Puedo hacer una pregunta? Sí. ¿Qué, sí. ¿Qué son los poemas muertos? ¿Qué son los poemas En la situación de la, de la poesía hoy día. ¿Se fija? Se continúan escribiendo grandes poemas. It is the situation of today's poetry that great poets, great, great poems continue to be written. But its sphere of influence, its limit is 200,000 copies. It's incomparable with an effort of Nike. And nonetheless, in those poems, all of the keys are contained of the possibilities of a different world. That's what he thinks that, eso es lo que crees que son los poemas muertos. That's what he thinks the dead poems are. I was um, thinking about the poets who get translated into English these days and looking at some books that are, have just come out or that are coming out in 2012. And I noticed that the Peruvian Eduardo Chirinos has books coming out from Salt, and the Peruvian Ivan Yauri um, has a book from Ugly Duckling Press, and Miriam Mascona of Mexico has a beautiful new book from a press in California called Les Figs Press. And the Argentine Jorge Parednik has a book coming out from Action Books, and Shearsman Editions, which is in the UK, but um, distributes books here too, and has been really dedicated to translations, has a new book by Eduardo Milan, the Uruguayan. Um, in every case, uh, the translator um, had met the poet before the translator began, embarked on the project of translation. And I was thinking of Salan's saying that he made little distinction between a poem and a handshake, and that with translation to take place, this very necessary process of discovering the other in, in another language, that very often, at least in terms of the United States and Latin America, takes place because the translator travels somewhere else, or the poet travels to the States and makes contact, that again, it's, translation is a very personal activity. He wasn't blessed by the God of language, and so translation is too important. It's very important. It's different to translate someone who you can ask questions to as opposed to someone to whom you can't ask questions. In the death of Virgil, a novel, it says that Virgil dies in the end. The narrative voice says, now we can't ask him anything, nor do we have the right to do so, because he's beyond language. And so... Perhaps translation is an exercise that is even more sophisticated than writing itself. I will never read uh, the Karamazov brothers in Russian, but when I read it in Spanish, it changed my life. That was Anna Dini speaking for Raul Zarita. The conversation continues with host Ilya Kaminsky asking Forrest Gander a few questions about how working as a translator affects his own poetry. Forrest, you have just published a 
beautiful, beautiful book of poetry, core sample from the world, which should be done by um, words uh, that say, we must consider what is meant by foreign and the foreigner. And in your own work, uh, you have translated uh, from Spanish and other languages for many, many years. But my question is not just about translation, but about your being a poet in your own right. How is that influenced by going out there in the world and then coming back? What happens to English? You come back with diseases that make your body stronger and make your language stronger. Other languages infect our language in very positive ways. I think it's parasites that uh, stimulate our immune system, and it's the encounter with different image repertoires, different rhythms, different syntaxes, different modes of seeing the world linguistically in other languages that open up English and expand it. And one of the great things about the flexibility of our language is that it continues to take in these influences from other languages. In course samples from the world, you also say, quote, of course, every place is equally exotic and numbingly familiar, and our distance from others, as Edmund Chabas notes, is exactly that of our distance from ourselves. So you have spoken about the craft of English, what happens to it, how it's expanded. Um, what are other ways in which a poet can be expanded, poet's knowledge of the world? What are the core samples of the world? Hmm. I think it's the, it's not until we contact difference that we're challenged in ways that make our souls grow and that it's in the recognition um, when one travels that the foreigner is yourself. And what makes you foreign is the strangeness that you have in you from the beginning, which is the strangeness that others have. And in that recognition that you n never fully um, get through so that the self always remains somewhat unknowable and the other in another place always remains somewhat unknowable. It's the recognition of that that makes us realize that we don't control everything, even ourselves. And I think it's that humbleness that's the beginning of the possibility of an ethical relationship with, with the rest of the world. So I think that the encounter with the other is the beginning of a, a working out of ethics. Raúl, what do you... Una, una pregunta first. Tú eres un poeta muy impresionante, muy fuerte. Very impressive and very strong poet. Y traduces. And you translate. ¿Por qué? Why? ¿Tú quieres que la gente conozca esos otros poemas? Why? Do you want others to, to, to know those poems? Why? First of all, I'm greedy. I want to know what's going on 
in other countries and other countries' writing. Ilya's like this too. He's just a madman for wanting to know what's going on in other places. And then when I'm turned on by something that I find really exciting, or as you said, you know, reading the Brothers Karamazov, it changed your life, that I do want to bring it to others. And where I have the capacity to do that, I'm excited to share this thing that illuminated me and that thrilled me with others. That's what's made me want to translate. And then the corollary of it is that in the act of translation, my own work gets changed. I was thinking today about this line of yours, um, los desaparecidos levantan su cara desde los desiertos, that the disappeared rays, and then it's a plural, the disappeared rays, but you say their face instead of their faces. And that that's a possibility in Spanish grammar that focuses in on an image in a way that's much stronger poetically than having the plural. And that we can do that in English. You can say um, her feet were swollen. And if you say like melons, that's one thing. But if you say it like a melon, which is kind of incorrect grammatically, it's much more powerful poetically because it's singular. And that's a way where something one learns from another language can expand the possibilities of what one might do in English. I think this is a wonderful phrase to end on, the expansion of possibilities of what can be done in English. Thank you very much. That was Ilya Kaminsky, and that concludes our program with Raoul Zarita and Forrest Gander. The conversation was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on September 27, 2011. Anna Dini provided the translation for Zarita's remarks. The program was part of International Poets in Conversation, sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. Raoul Zarita's books include the trilogy Purgatory, Anti-Paradise, and The New Life, which were published in Spanish between 1979 and 1993, and he has published numerous books over the last decade. Anna Dini's English translation of Purgatory was published in 2009. Among his more recent works, Zarita's books Inri and Song for His Disappeared Love were published in bilingual editions. Zarita's four-word poem carved into the Atacama Desert in northern Chile can still be seen today. Forrest Gander's books of poetry include Core Samples from the World, Eye Against Eye, and Science and Steepleflower. You can read more about Raul Zarita and Forrest Gander and some other poems at poetryfoundation.org. The site also features a transcript of a 2009 interview with Zarita in which he describes his activities during the Pinochet dictatorship. Also at the Poetry Foundation website, you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.